Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people and others in the autism community to learn from their stories. These stories are being represented more often on TV, which is great because seeing those that reflect your life and those you connect with is so important. On this episode of Autism Stories, Haley Moss returns as we discuss a recent documentary on Netflix, Love on the Spectrum. We talk about what Haley liked about this documentary, as well as what things the show could have done better to represent autistic people. Haley also shares with us details about an exciting new book she is writing. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Haley, thanks so much for returning to Autism Stories. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to get to hang out with you and chat about pop culture, autism, and everything in between. I was recently watching the documentary on Netflix, Love on the Spectrum, which I, I certainly had some concerns about this documentary. And while I was watching, I thought about you because I remember reading your excellent article about how to date when you have a disability. And I started to think, I wonder what Haley is thinking about this show. So wanted to start off by wondering what were some of the critiques that you had about the show? So I think that's right. kind of what you're expecting me to say, but first things first, I, I want to give credit to all the subjects and all the autistic people who appeared on this show. Mm-hmm. I know from being a subject before in documentary, doing media interviews and whatnot, but it takes a lot to put yourself out there and to give that kind of access into your life. So a lot of the subjects notably lived at home, so I know that a lot, there's always a lot of concern about, oh, the parents get a lot of screen time for a dating show, and I'm like, well, everybody lives at home, so that kind of makes sense a little bit more. So I'm also really appreciative of everyone who gave their time, the families, the subjects, the people that they were dating. I mean, reality, it definitely was interesting because these situations were obviously pretty manipulated, not really real life dating, and also just really grateful to them and also I appreciate that the directors and crews even know when and respect the boundaries that these folks were setting so there were a couple instances throughout the show I noticed where like one of the girls I believe her name was Amanda was on a date with this guy named Michael Michael was actually my least favorite guy on the show but Amanda was on a date with him and she said on camera she's like I'm overwhelmed this is too much and they just let her go they let her take a break. They stopped rolling. It was very clear. Like, when she said it was too much, it was too much, and that was okay. They weren't trying to continue to force it or anything like that. So there are places like that that I'm really, really grateful for the show before going into the fact that I think that what Peter wrote me the wrong way the most about Love on the Spectrum was that it's really it's a view of autism that is through a neurotypical lens. So, obviously, I'm not the target audience of the show. Kind of not surprised about it, so it's kind of clear that it was not for us, by us, or, or by us, for us. It was definitely a way that makes non-disabled and non-neurotypical people feel good. Now, you mentioned you've been a documentary subject before, so from that perspective, what did you think of Love on the Spectrum? I'm very lucky that when I was in it, that 
when I was in the show, I wasn't in the show, I was part of a student pieces film, and my, I was not in any manipulative situation, so I wasn't, like, forced to go on a date, I wasn't really forced to do anything, the only thing we really did that was outside of my normal life, per se, was we went to the beach one day, because we thought it would be really fun to get a couple of shots at the beach, because I live in Miami, and we tried to have this, like, deep conversation about masking because it seemed like a cool place to do it and it was something that would never would have happened on the beach in my real life but mm-hmm. we did it it didn't end up making the cut so I guess that was kind of an interesting but what happens is and I always like to remind people of this when you see a show like Love on a Spectrum keep in mind these are what an hour long episode and each subject has what maybe 20-30 minutes of screen time I can tell you there are so many hours of filming that go to that so what you're seeing is a very distorted picture of what really happened. So it's not that it didn't happen. It's just pieced together in such a way that it might not be linear or in line with things. So that dinner date that you might have seen could have been filmed over hours. So I would like to tell a story about when I would get ready for work because I got filmed getting ready for work several times. Is Getting ready for work would suddenly take about three times as long because you'd have to stop to get that perfect like, shot of a button being buttoned there just to explain like oh what, what did you just do because as you notice there were a lot of times when the subject would be like I'm doing this I'm doing that instead of having the overarching narrator say something so I think you kind of have to keep that in mind too is there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that you don't really see but you can also tell that the filmmakers really did try to take a lot of care with their subjects and respect their boundaries which to me was huge one of the things that struck me about the show was there was probably not a lot of diverse representation within the artistic community. I'm not sure if there was a cast member that was a person of color or from the LGBT community. Thinking about media representation of autistics, where do you think we are now in September 2020? I think we still have a lot of work to go. And like you said, there was a huge lack of people of color, especially black folks. And I don't know what the racial demographics in Australia are, because again, this show took place in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I don't quite know how representative it is of the Australian autistic community, but I know it's definitely not represented, especially because there are unique struggles that happen as through an intersectionality framework by being black and autistic or a person of color and autistic and also being queer and autistic, you mentioned that as well, there was a date in the first episode between two women, or female presenting folks, at least, I'm not sure what their pronouns are, so I want to be as clear as possible, and in the Where Are They Now, that aired a couple weeks later, one of the cast members did mention she was bisexual, but that wasn't explored on the show, and something in representation that also was really strange about this show to me, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, is all the dating was between autistic people. So it kind of really hammers something home that's just not true in representation is that we only date autistic people. It's probably my least favorite thing to have to answer to because even in my life, I don't want to talk about my own dating life too much, but it's really annoying having to tell people, like, oh, I'm autistic, and people go, so do you, like, not date, do you only date autistic people? And, of course, the answer is no. I mean, like, good people are good people, right? Right. But... But that's something that this show seems to hammer on. Like, oh, look how cute. It's autistic people only dating autistic people. So that's kind of not the best in representation because it's just not accurate. 
Not accurate at all. I know lots of autistic people that have neurotypical partners. I can tell you for a fact my longest lasting relationship is with a neurotypical partner, so. You know, you, you talked maybe a little bit about this earlier. Why do you think that they just chose to have, in this show, autistic people dating other uh, autistic or neurodiverse people? I'm not sure why they made that choice, but I think they wanted to do it maybe to show like that it was safe to practice all these social skills that they were trying to teach on the show. But at the same time, that seems really counterintuitive because if you have two people who naturally struggle with communication... And then you're asking them both to try on this, like, mask of being neurotypical with one another. It's just not going to go well. I have had autistic partners before, just as I've had neurotypical partners. Half the fun of having an autistic partner is you can't be cut through all that crap. Is that you can just be yourself completely and the rules don't apply. The rules of neurotypical communication don't really apply. When they do is when both people end up completely frustrated. So it seemed really strange to make those decisions. And also I think it goes back to that feeling that viewers walk away with and I saw a lot of the reactions from neurotypical viewers like oh this is so wholesome this is so pure and it's like you know we're just adults looking for love looking for relationships looking for the exact same things as anybody else and that could be with anybody else so that's something that I was thinking about in terms of representation in terms of where we're going and also just who the audience was I've never understood why you would use the like the words wholesome or pure or any of those types of adjectives when we're talking about adults. Exactly. And something else that struck me with the show, too, not only are we talking about adults, a lot of these folks were young adults. So they're, the oldest participant, I believe, was maybe in their late 20s or my, a little bit older than me. And the youngest was 19. And the 19-year-old was like, oh, I've never been in a relationship, I've never been in love, I've never been any of that. And I'm sitting there like, I'm pretty sure at 19 years old, I was a college sophomore. I was, I've been in a relationship at that point, but at the same time, I don't know if I had that same, like, oh, I'm going to go run off and get married and run into the sunset feeling. I was 19, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So they're showing these young people, and that's okay, there are plenty of late bloomers, there are plenty of people who just don't prioritize the relationships, and they're making it seem like it's unique to autism when really it isn't. Especially with these younger people that they show on the show. Like, these people that are younger saying, oh, I've never had a partner before, I've never gone on a date before. How abnormal is that really? How othering is it? Like, if they showed older folks on the spectrum, maybe it would have made more sense, like, okay, maybe this person does struggle more, or maybe, what I just didn't quite understand that all the cast members were first you know, probably under about 28, uh, definitely under 30, definitely under 30. I mean, just in general, they had a lack of experience. So, I mean, I would be, I would, I'd be horrified about me being 19 years old and being on a reality show where I was going on first dates. I mean, everyone has different reasons, I think, for joining reality shows, because I do like to watch reality TV, even though I know it's a completely alternate universe. Like, you watch, I watch The Bachelor. And I realize people don't always go on The Bachelor looking for love, even though that's what they say they are, so then you get on the show. A lot of them do it because they want to be influencers, they want to, you know, have their own show, or they want something else to come out of it that benefits their career or their motives, rather than actually walking away with, like, the guy, or the girl, or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. Reality TV reality is its own strange breed of things. Now, getting back to the article that you wrote on dating when you have a disability, you talked about disclosure a lot in the in the article. 
What do you think are some of the uh, biggest challenges of disclosure? I think it's really awkward with new people having to tell them, like, oh, I'm disabled or I'm autistic. Because you never know how someone's going to react. You never know if it's going to be a problem for them until it is a problem for them. So I know this because I, I, from my experience, it's something. I can't really get around it too well because, you know, I'm pretty open about things. But at the same time, you know that people are afraid of what they don't know. You know someone might see you as less. I've had that happen. I've had people be, be cool with it and people not be. And then there are people that are cool with it until they're not, mm-hmm. until it affects them in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's a very difficult thing to navigate. And, of course, when you show autistic people dating autistic people, you completely eliminate that need for disclosure, you eliminate that whole dynamic, which for disabled people in general who are dating, especially if you're dating non-disabled people, is a really nuanced, complicated thing. You know, folks who won't say anything until after they're even a couple days in, people who will say it on the first date and then wonder why they never get a call back, that it's really something that deserves more explanation and exploration on TV. But it's one of those things that you just don't know what to do all the time, and that's okay. Something about Love on the Spectrum that I felt uncomfortable with was uh, in the scenes with the dating coaches. So one one was oh with my God. <laughs> one was uh, dating coach to the individ- the kind of one on one coaching, and then the, another dating coach was doing the group coaching. So uh-huh. what, what what were your thoughts on these social skills? Do you see them as more Helpful or harmful to autistics? I think that all the coaches met well. I don't. Right. I have no doubt that they met well and that their hearts are in the right place and that they really want to do better. But I also think, again, this is reality TV. Some of it is probably scripted or designed in such a way that it's palatable to an audience. I don't know how much coaching really happened outside of what they showed you. And I also thought it was kind of strange because. A lot of people don't have experience. They need, they need to know. I do think social skills can be helpful in a lot of situations, but also it's kind of contradictory. Like one of the episodes, they were like, "Be yourself, but also don't do this." <laughs> and it's like, this is kind of. I don't like that advice that autistic people are given as like, "Be yourself," and then, but, but but not like that. Like, I remember they were getting Michael ready for one of the dinner dates, and he and his brother was giving him advice. The dating coach gave him advice that was like, "Be yourself." What about the fact that they were teaching social skills to autistics when they were going to be going on dates with other autistics? That was seen. That's where it gets weird. <laughs> because, again, you ha- it's like going on a first date with somebody and both of you originally speak English and then they're trying to teach you both to have this date in Spanish and neither of you speak Spanish that well. It's not going to go well. And it's not that you don't care to speak Spanish or you don't have to speak Spanish in certain situations or whatever second language it might be. I did do Spanish because I live in a bilingual city. And it's just strange having this whole thing going on in another language pretty much when you already speak, uh, unless you're purposely trying to learn that language together, it just doesn't seem like it makes sense. Like, why not speak the language that you know best, especially if both of you know that language best? 
At, at one point in the show, there was a uh, speed dating event. I don't remember which episode in which only uh, disabled people participated in. What, what do you think about uh, events like this? I think they're really stressful because that's basically the same as networking. But I do think even if it is all disabled people, it's a little bit less high stakes as like traditional networking, like speed mentoring events are the bane of my existence. I absolutely hate going to them because I never know. I've been on both sides of them. I've been the mentor and the mentee, and each time I feel equally lost. You're so scared that someone's not going to like you. And then by the time you see the next person, you're like, wait, who did I even talk to? And I think especially if you have visual processing or sensory processing, those events are just a hot mess. So I don't quite understand them, but I hope that the people who participated enjoyed them. It, it seemed like the show uh, attempted to match people based on common interest. But should... Mm-hmm. But should there have been more of a focus on matching people based on special interests? I'm not sure. I think meeting, I think matching people is always kind of complicated, and I think a lot of it is they try to do that and put people in because it's reality TV. Is that you? You know that even while you're having this conversation about whatever it is your special interest is, there's some other eye in the room with cameras and microphones and all sorts of stuff. So it's definitely not unnatural situation to be in under any circumstances. Yeah, I I can can totally see that. It also seemed strange that everyone was, like, the first dates were always, it seemed to be... They were super formal. Yeah, and and they were always at restaurants, which could be certainly sensory, you know, sensory nightmares. I mean, this restaurant date that I remember watching on the show was an empty restaurant pretty much. And you know that they did that because of filming, and they got mostly clear, and they got these secluded tables for probably because they couldn't get the entire restaurant to like sign a waiver. It, there's all sorts of stuff because I remember anytime we filmed at restaurants, they had to get a waiver or something from the restaurant to even film there. And then they'd always pick a table like towards the back so it doesn't interfere with other people who are dining there. So they probably picked restaurants that they had access to, such as the ones with outdoor dining or ones that had secluded tables or party areas so they could set up all their stuff and they could take up as much time as they need to or want to. So kind of some little behind-the-scenes things on why they probably picked restaurants or they picked open areas like when they picked museums or the flower fields or, or just like picnics in the park when they pick other stuff. Like part of why they picked those dates has to deal with production and filming as well. So just a fun fact. None of this is natural. <laughs> no, it's it's definitely not that natural, and I'm just wondering about this type of model because we're in a world now where we're clearly moving for to meeting people online so much more. So, do you think this type of model, even if it's done like perfectly, is a good way for autistics to find partners? not sure. I think everybody finds partners in different ways. I know that like the most successful relationship I had was because we met we met because we lived next door to each other in college. And I've also met people I've met people online, I've met people through mutual friends. I think it really depends on who the person is and however you meet them is how you meet them. Were there were there things in order to kind of give some balance, were there were there some things that you liked on the this show other than the autistic participants? 
because his star is my favorite part. They would have loved to have hung out with both of them. There was only one of them that I think I mentioned I wasn't the biggest fan of, but the rest of them I would have loved to hang out with. Even if I'm not sure how neurotypicals were supposed to interpret all of them, especially because some of them had very interesting special interests. So there was the guy that was like super into dinosaurs. There was Ruth with her snake and the other guy with his buses and his trains. I don't know how neurotypical people read these folks, but I would have loved to have hung out with them. So I guess that says a lot. And I just absolutely respected how much respect that the filmmakers seem to have while putting this together. So I do think from the back end, I think it was really well done. Even though I don't, that doesn't mean that I think it's a great show. I think it was well executed for what it is. When you take it with a grain of salt that this is kind of very manipulated, it's kind of reality TV, it's more reality TV with a bunch of, you know, neurodivergent people. What did you think? I thought a lot of the participants, you know, after the dates did a great job, you know, especially if they weren't um, interested in a second date. Uh, you know, when I was 19 or in my early 20s, I don't think I would have done nearly as good of a job. So what, what I, don't, I don't know if I still would have done as good of a job, but... I'm also just a strange, I sometimes, I feel like with communication, it's really hard sometimes. I know, especially with executive functioning, I forget to text people back. And then they think I'm not interested. It's like, no, it's not that I'm not interested. I am interested. Just my brain is just dropped out. Now, I hear they're making season two of Love on the Spectrum. So I'm, I'm wondering, what advice would you give the show in ways to make season two a better representation of autistic people? So obviously more people of color and more people of different sexual orientations and gender identities would be great. I think that's kind of is an, a very quick and obvious baseline. And I think also start matching people with neurotypicals because you get that extra, those extra complications. And probably one of my favorite things, because I don't like the first couple episodes of Love on the Spectrum, because honestly it was just very emotional for me to watch because of my experience and because of how I talked about the subject, is I really loved the routines that they showed with these people to see people. And I wanted to get to know the participants better beyond their love lives. So when they showed them hanging out with their friends or showing us their special interests, I wanted to spend more time getting to know them as people because it made me more empathetic. And also just makes me think these are really cool people. So I think humanize, both humanizing your subjects and also get rid of the narrator I know that's weird, but the narrator made me think I was watching Animal Planet. Based on how she's like, this is so-and-so, and so-and-so <laughs> loves this, this, and this, and their dislikes are this, this, and this. And it's like, these are people, not not the exhibit at Animal Kingdom. Just kind of, you don't need to tell me, just show me? Just show me, or let them explain, like, like hi. Like, if you showed me, you'd see, like, I'm Haley, and I love this pictures of me drawing or maybe see I don't know me at a fitness class you see me doing like, like things that I like to do instead of having being like this is Haley she likes group fitness art painting writing video games and this and this and she also really hates loud noises and jazz music like it just doesn't seem right it, does, it kind of oversimplifies what makes us who we are it also seemed to me when they were talking about the dislikes that those seem to all be kind of sensory processing issues. That's why I mentioned the jazz music thing. But I do think a lot of things that we dislike are very sensory-based. Like, a lot of us know, like, what foods we absolutely will never try or eat. We know certain sounds in certain places and things that make us uncomfortable. 
And a lot of those are very sensory experiences or rooted in trauma or some other emotion that gives us that feeling of dislike or disgust or whatever it might be. Like, think about, I mean, I think it's literally just say, like, these people don't like people who are mean to them. They don't like bullies. And it would be like, well, duh, nobody does. <laughs> I don't know. It just kind of sat funny with me. Before letting you go, I I can't let you go without asking you. Uh, I hear I hear you're writing a new book, maybe researching it at the moment. Can you tell everyone what you the book right. what's the book about, and and is there any expected date that uh, we could purchase it? Okay, first things first, aiming for twenty twenty one. God willing, everything goes according to plan, and I am currently in the middle of writing a book about neurodiversity for lawyers. So it's pretty technical, kind of not utmost folks' wheelhouse, honestly, but I'm very, very excited about it. And I will tell you all day long about the American Disabilities Act and how lawyers can, you know, be better about disability inclusion and neurodiversity and how it helps them with hiring, helps them more folks with IED and other neurodiverse conditions and traits are able to get into the legal profession, not just as lawyers, but just so that we're more accepting, that we are more empathetic work better with folks around us and also can help our clients better. So I'm really excited about it. It's something that's never really been done before, so it's a lot like treading new ground. But other than that, I'm also working on another book after that, or at least that's my plan. So I will keep you posted when I have more information on something that hopefully is more fun for more people too. But I'm always really interested in researching. I love getting to learn more. I love learning about the ADA. You know I love to talk about the ADA. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just really excited to make my profession more inclusive of neurodiverse people. I, I was really excited when I read about that book. I'm wondering, through your research, what have you learned in the process? Um, what I ended up learning is there's a lot of people in our field who don't disclose whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I've met more lawyers with ADHD than I could shake a stick at right now. And it's pretty amazing. And, of course, you're researching this and you're going, I think I might have ADHD too. Because so much of it overlaps with autism and the executive dysfunction that everybody thinks about, you're sitting there like, AF. Yep. And it's really cool because the more people that I spoke to for researching this book and just to understand and color my own, like, understanding, the more I realized for a lot of people, this is the first time they've talked about neurodivergence. And it was really something that I took to heart. And I really did feel grateful for all the lawyers and law students who trusted me with something that I know they clearly have never spoken to anyone really about. So that really meant a lot to me. And I realized that it's, a lot of people don't disclose because they're afraid of being seen as weak, they're afraid of being perceived as a failure, or they just don't know how it can hurt their career. And there are salary disparities, there are hiring disparities for lawyers with disabilities, that there are all sorts of barriers that are in your way, and we just never t- tackle them. Well, I am really looking forward to 2021 for about a million reasons, but but one of the big ones... Oh, me too. <laughs> But one of the big ones uh, is I'm is, looking forward to leaving my house again. And uh, look, look, definitely looking forward to reading reading this book. You know, and Haley, thanks so much for um, being you know honoring me um, with uh, returning to autism stories again. I always love talking with you. I always love it too, and thank you for letting me share all of the fun, dirty opinions that I probably have about love on the spectrum. <laughs> 
Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks so much to Haley, as always, for the conversation. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about autism stories. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we provide autistic adults and teens hard-to-find support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our coaching and community events. Visit AutismPersonalCoach.com to learn more about what we do. On next week's episode of Autism Stories, Tracy Cohen returns as we discuss her new book, My Life on the Spectrum, Misunderstandings, Insight, and Growth. Talk to you then.